In a not-so-stable world, it is crucial to amplify the right message. At the Stream Grace Network, our goal is to do just that. We are adding to our stable of podcasters every month, and we are growing. This is where you come in. We want to share in that growth. If you are a small business owner looking to grow your business, we'd love it if you'd consider allowing one of our podcasters to endorse you, your products, or services. The best part is that endorsement will never stop running in any episode it is a part of, ever. This is a unique and rare benefit in digital advertising. We want everything we do to be uplifting and to encourage positive growth. And we'd love to partner with you. For more information, visit us online at StreamGrace.com or email us at support at StreamGrace.com. God bless. Well, hello, and welcome to my corner of the digital universe. Prepare to dive deep, get real, get close, and find out entirely too much about people you likely don't even know. I am Jeremy Griffin, and these are my conversations. So grab a coffee and get comfortable, because here we go. You're listening to the Stream Grace Network. I'm very excited about today's guest. Uh, it is a return of this guest. Um, the first episode was amazing and is now going to be called The Lost Episode because due to technical difficulties, it is lost. Um, <laughs> but I am glad to have my friend Doc Curtis back on the program. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, man. That's awesome. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Thanks for doing it again, man. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, before we dive too much into stuff, let's just tell everybody, you have a PhD in microbiology and immunology, right? That's right. All right. Well, let's, um, let's dive into that a little bit real quick and find out more about that and then some of the projects you've worked on. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I got my PhD, um, from the university of Oklahoma in microbiology and immunology. That was the department I went in, um, you know, technically, you get your degree in philosophy, which is what the PhD is for. But uh, um, I worked in microbiology and immunology. Um, when I was in grad school, I worked with West Nile virus, um, and I studied the immune response to West Nile virus. Um, and during that time, I learned how to grow the virus in the Biosafety Level Three lab. Um, and I, uh, since then, um, after I graduated, I've worked with uh, tuberculosis in the BSL three. Um, and HIV. And uh, uh, then after I, um, after kind of my postdoc period, I joined a company, Pure MHC, and uh, we developed vaccines for cancer. Um, and then early on this year, we uh, uh, switched gears a bit into doing um, and to study the immune response for SARS-CoV-2, which is the um, coronavirus that causes COVID. And uh, um, so, you know, around, I don't know, March, we got the virus in, um, started culturing it and infected cells in the Biosafety Level 3 lab. Um, and we completed our project. And, uh, you know, hopefully it helps uh, um, people um, understand more about how the immune system reacts to this virus. Yeah, so. for sure, man. And I want to, we'll dive into a lot of stuff about that, but just real quick. So 
Um, can you explain to me, because <laughs> maybe your yeah. listeners already know, can you explain to me how we go from, like, you've got coronavirus and you mentioned SARS-CoV-2, like, what are those variations? In other words, oh. like, are they're, are they're not synonymous, right? Or are they synonymous? No. Um, so there is a family of viruses called the coronaviruses, um, oh. and they call them that because they kind of look like a crown under the microscope with little spike proteins. Um, and, uh, most coronaviruses, um, called alpha coronaviruses, they cause the common cold or they can, um, so they're, you know, basically, um, you know, much less severe than sure. these other coronaviruses. Um, and then there's the beta coronaviruses and this is, includes the original SARS, which was 2013 and 14, um, MERS, which is a, a Middle Eastern, uh, version of the, of this virus. And SARS-CoV-2, um, which is the official name of the new virus. Um, and this virus causes, um, SARS-CoV-2, causes what we call COVID-19. Um, so COVID-19 is like the disease, and um, SARS-CoV-2 is the actual virus. Gotcha. Kind of like how HIV is the virus and AIDS is what um, HIV causes. Gotcha. That makes sense. Well, that'll help me in the future know what's what. And and two, I think here's something that's kind of interesting because there was a lot of, we'll talk a little bit about misinformation, whether it's intentional or unintentional. Yeah. But, um, but you know, the, early on in the in this uh, pandemic, when people were talking, you know, calling it the, the coronavirus, uh, which was more likely, it's more appropriate to say a coronavirus. Um, yeah. But uh, they were looking on Lysol cans and passing around the meme that's like, hey, they've been... They've been killing the coronavirus for years. What's going on here, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah, yeah, that Lysol does uh, affect the common cold. That's helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Lysol actually is really good at killing viruses. And so there's not too many viruses that it doesn't uh, kill within like 30 seconds of, of it you know, kind of interacting with it. So we should, um, should, should we inject Lysol into our veins? Oh, definitely not. It doesn't work that way. Or just on the surface, uh, you know, the, this virus has a membrane, and the Lysol helps kind of dissolve the membrane. Gotcha. And so, um, yeah, but if you injected it, uh, despite being poisonous, if you did that, it wouldn't, I mean. Wouldn't do anything would, anyway, right? It would just get diluted, actually. It would just start mm. kind of lysing your own cells, and the virus would, um, it would just kind of dilute it out. So it wouldn't be effective. Wow. So, um, another quick question. So you're, you're working in bio level three stuff. And, and I know when we talked last time, you didn't think to yourself, man, at six years old, I'm going to, you know, study germs in the bio lab three and, uh, viruses and such. And I'm always reminded of the movie outbreak, um, <laughs> because I'm like, you know, I remember the opening scene and they're walking through the different bio levels at, um, Sam Rid and they're showing, uh, you know, what studied in each one. And I thought to myself, man, the anxiety level for me would probably be pretty high because when I run sound uh, at large events, there are moments where I think, man, I could just mess this whole thing up by pressing one button. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. and so I think to myself, and I want you to kind of talk about that. How Do, do you have those moments of like, man, I sure hope I don't catch something? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, oh, it's it's pretty bad. Um, like, so... <laughs> When when I didn't intend on going in the BSL three West Nile virus is a, a biosafety level three uh, containment virus, um, and so um, I kind of got assigned this virus in grad school, and um, I had to train myself 
Um, uh, actually, I was trained by uh, another scientist, but uh, um, with kind of little instruction. Um, and then um, I was I was tested a whole bunch of times, and really it it comes down to kind of just being able to focus and pay attention. Mm. But I remember when I when I started growing, um, so I had a lot of experience before I started growing tuberculosis. Um, so West Nile virus isn't that scary, honestly, because um, I, um, you can't you, you can't readily aerosolize it and get infected. Mm. And so, you know, I just had to worry about like not sticking myself and like you know, decontaminating all the surfaces when I was working with it. But the first one that I worked with that you could inhale readily was tuberculosis. And I remember, man, I mean, I never I never became exposed. I never seroconverted. Um, so that was good, but I remember the first time I, tr uh, uh, worked with this, man, I, anytime I coughed, I was like, man, I got tuberculosis. Oh, yeah. I was like, there's no way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, when you're, when you're down in there, you, I mean, you, 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 you wear a Tyvek suit, you wear an N95, you wear a face shield. Um, part of the criteria, um, to, uh, when you're training is that you can't be a claustroph uh, claustrophobic. Mm. Um, and they, they actually make sure that you can't, because you can't just rip it off. And really you do feel, you feel, um, enclosed when you're down there. Um, everything, there's no walls, you know, the, the hoods are smaller, like you have a mask, um, you, you have a face shield. So, um, everything feels really tight. And then on top of that, if you, you you realize you're working with a pathogen that can infect you and possibly kill you, and you know whenever you're kind of moving the virus around, or you know you have a tube of virus and you're moving that liquid around, you can't you can't drop it, you can't accidentally drop it. I mean, there's protocols if you do, but um, you're just hyper aware of yes, I have a virus, um, and uh, um, you know it can harm me. And uh, it was actually a little nerve wracking um, with uh, SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, because it was kind of an unknown. So with tuberculosis, you know, they can give you antibiotics and stuff. So if you get exposed or whatever. But with this one, I was like really super nervous about it. Yeah. So, so <laughs> just so everyone understands, too, uh, SARS-CoV-2 is a level three virus. Yep. Yes. Yeah. It's BSL3. Yeah. And they mm -hmm. haven't changed that. Normally, you, you know, when we talked last time, you talked about how, you know, most unknown viruses start off, you know, at least at that level until they yeah. figure it out. And, and, uh, this one has not been downgraded. No, it hasn't been downgraded. Yeah. So they, they, um, they may eventually do it at some point. Um, but the first SARS is BSL3 as well. Mm. And so they, they probably won't do it. But if you were, were working with the alpha coronaviruses, um, which there are a few people at OU uh, working on them, um, they're BSL2. Gotcha. And so you just, need, you, you just need to work with a hood. The, really, the difference is, is the entire... So when you work in BSL2, you work in a hood, and that, that hood has constant air circulation that's pumping through HEPA filters. Mm. And so if you create aerosols, they just get sucked up into the HEPA filters. Well, BSL3 is basically the same, only you wear more protection, but the entire room is under negative pressure. Mm. And so um, if there's aerosols that go inside the room, they get sucked up into HEPA filters. And so that's kind of the difference. Gotcha. So, you know, along those lines, what are, what are some of those things that people can do just in their house um, to pr protect or cleanse the air? Is there anything they can do for something like, uh, like uh, COVID-19 or, or is that just a, you know, just don't, just don't get it. <laughs> well, like in terms of the air. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can, uh, um, well, you know, I hesitate to say using the ionizing air purifiers, but those, 
those would work. Um, the real they ones, right? It's not good for you, but uh, mm. um, but um, actually, just even like opening the door and having air circulation is probably pretty good. I mean, it surprise um, <laughs> if you have viral particles that are kind of floating around in the air or air, fine aerosols, um, and you open the door and you get some wind coming through um, or sucking the air out, it's the virus is going to go with it. And yeah. so, you know, that's open a window. <laughs> um, I wouldn't do it now. It's kind of cold, but, <laughs> right. um, you know, uh, um, having, having air circulation is actually pretty important. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes total sense. And, and uh, it's, it's like diluting it, I would assume, too, is uh, oh. just replacing the air and all that jazz. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. All right, so I want to talk about this because uh, the, I want to talk about masks for just a moment. And, and uh, the first thing I want to talk about is, in general, um, can you talk about your journey from uh, when they first you know, started talking about wearing masks to today and kind of what your thought process was and how it evolved? Yeah, sure. Um, well, as you and I discussed before, it was kind of chaotic, right? I mean, right. you had uh, at the beginning, you had kind of conflicting uh, thing, uh, advice. Um, and so, you know, when they, they, they first came out, I remember that they were like, the masks aren't effective. Um, and they were talking specifically about N95 masks. Mm. Um, and N95 masks are different. I, I need to draw this distinction because it's important, but the, an N95 a, uh, mask is actually a respirator. Um, it, it filters the air incoming and it seals around your face. You can't have a beard. You can't have facial hair wearing it. It's not effective. Um, but it, it filters the incoming air. A, a surgical mask or a cloth mask, mask they're completely different. They um, are not filtering incoming air. Mm. And so they were recommending um, that they were saying that the N95 masks were not effective. And I was like, why, why would you say that? And apparently it was all due. They didn't want people running on um, the N95s in the store. They wanted to reserve them for um, healthcare workers. But, mm. you know, they didn't come out and say that at first. And then they came back later and said that. And so that was super confusing um, um, initially um, right. as well. Um, and then, and then later they, um, um, they started recommending surgical masks. And, um, when I first heard that, I was like, why that does, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It, the, it doesn't filter any incoming viruses. The air just goes around the mask. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that that was kind of ridiculous, honestly, um, when it first came out. Um, but, um, I guess what I wasn't considering was um, um, how they actually work. Um, and so uh, really a, a surgical mask or a cloth mask, um, the way that it works, and I didn't know this at the time, and um, to be fair, not a lot of people knew this, um, and the, or they didn't convey it um, in kind of a logical manner. Yeah. Um, but what it does is it like, it almost catches the particles. Um, it doesn't prevent them from going. The virus can go th- straight through the mask. Mm-hmm. It, it's small enough. The droplets are small enough. They can go through the mask. Um, what it does is it just kind of um, reduces the transmission radius um, mm-hmm. that, that you can transmit it to other people. So in, when uh, at the beginning, they were kind of recommending that people stay like six feet away. And the reason why is because when you're talking and stuff, the droplets fall to the floor at around six feet or they disperse or whatever. Um, so uh, they're um, not gonna be as uh, um, infectious um, at six feet away. Well, if you wear a mask, 
now that becomes from six feet down to like one or two feet. Gotcha. And so, um, um, so what that means is that you can um, have a comfortable distance, a normal uh, a distance between you and somebody else talking, um, and still have the same kind of uh, uh, safety as being six feet uh, apart. Yeah. And so I didn't understand that um, at the beginning. Um, I guess like I kind of should have. Like it makes sense now, but um, at the time um, I definitely thought it was uh, ridiculous because I thought that you know the virus would just go around it. And so I wasn't thinking that you know um, it just reduces the radius. Um, well, that makes sense. And 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 uh, we'll talk a little more about this too um, in terms of like the uh, social ramifications and things like that. But another question I have for you about the masks is, is when you see people wearing them are, are, you know, there's a lot of conversation about wearing them correctly, whether they have been swapped out, you know, are they doing what medical professionals do or, or are trained to do in general, are the general public really adhering to that? And if they're not, is it cutting down the effectiveness based on what you just said? I don't think it would matter as far as the spread, but, but is it harming them? Um, is, is the wearing the mask, I'm, I'm going to repeat Sorry. your question. Yeah. Is, Go ahead. Is wearing, so is wearing the mask, uh, um, um, affecting the people wearing the mask? Is well, that what you're saying? Well, most specifically is, are people doing it correctly in terms of, you know, I, I know some people and I'm one of them has the same yeah. cloth mask just sitting in my car and, and I haven't changed it in ever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, if you are, if you're infected, it's gathering basically virus, um, mm -hmm. and you can, you know, it's going to survive on that mask for quite a while. So I think, um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you are in, infected that the cloth mask is, um, you know, gonna basically accumulate virus and, um, you know, swapping it out is probably a good idea. Um, cause it just gets dirty sure. um, with the virus. And then you can, when you're putting it on, you can get it on your hands and then transmit it that way. Yeah. Um, but they, they, um, you know, the, the kind of, uh, the, the way the masks are effective, at least at like a population level is when everyone's wearing them. If there is half the people wearing them, um, and not wearing them, then it's not, nearly as good as if everyone is wearing them. Mm -hmm. um, and that is because it mostly, um, it, like I said, it reduces the radius of an infected person um, uh, shedding the virus. And so it doesn't really like help you. It doesn't help the incoming virus. Yeah. Right. And so if somebody is not, if someone is not wearing a mask and standing within three feet of you, they're spewing out virus and you are more or less not protected mm -hmm. um, by wearing that mask. Um, you know, the, I've seen people, um, you know, kind of wear them below their nose and, and that also, um, uh, d basically defeats the purpose. Um, um, it's effectively like not wearing a, um, a, a mask at all. Yeah. And so really it, it's just gotta be over the nose and it's gotta be, you know, a cloth or a surgical mask and that's about it. Mm. Um, you know, that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of the rules. Right. So, uh, and this will be kind of the last question about masks because you know yeah, no the horse is pretty dead at this point but um the uh one of the you know i was talking to some fellas yesterday about the mask stuff and our previous conversation and and their biggest complaint um is some of the inconsistencies throughout the whole process of like say restaurants for example they can't figure out why you know for that 15 seconds that I'm walking to from the front door to my seat, I have to wear a mask. And then after that, I don't wear a mask and I can sit somewhere for three hours. And, and, you know, after 
kind of explaining what we talked about on, on the radius, it made a little more sense to me because as you're walking past all these other people with no mask on, not that that matters, yeah. but, but even mm-hmm. still, I mean, it's, it's no matter how you slice it, since it's not about protecting you, it's about protecting others. Anybody who walks by you, um, and you're not wearing a mask at your as you're sitting at the table, if they walk right past you, are they not just as susceptible as any other, you know, process? Yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs> okay. So, so that's the whole thing is that the struggle is, look, if this is really the deal, then, then wearing the mask from point A to point B is kind of pointless, especially when you figure wait staff is going from place to place, even if they're wearing a mask, I mean, it's not protecting them at all, you know, right. so because they're talking to everybody and definitely within six feet of non-mask wearers. And so I think that, you know, that becomes the problem. And, uh, and so I guess my question to you is, I mean, how would you, and, and again, I just want to say this there, for everyone listening, like you and I are having a conversation, neither one of us are policymakers and neither one of us claim to be, um, you're a scientist and I'm just a regular guy trying to understand the science. So with that said, what would you do with the restaurants and bars and things like that, given the reality that you, you might as well not wear one at all if you're going to take it off at any point in that, you know, trip? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think um, the the like it's kind of a tough situation because you got to eat and you right. can't be taking it on and off, right? Um, so <clears throat> you, if you're going to be indoors on a restaurant, um, you basically have no choice. I understand. So the wait staff, um, it, it's definitely a good idea for the wait staff to wear it because they they're seeing multiple people, right. even though maybe it, it doesn't protect them. Um, it, you know, it doesn't protect them as much um, wearing it. If they were actually infected, they would go and spread it out to every person, every customer that came in. Right. And so, um, by them wearing it, if they're infected, they're they're protecting. It's not the same um, if you're both wearing it, but they're still reducing it enough. They're reducing their radius, and so now they can go to multiple tables and not kind of spread it around. And so, I think having the wait staff uh, wear it is is a good idea. You know, the 15 seconds, if no one's around, I mean, honestly, it doesn't make a difference. I mean, if no one is there, (laughs) if you're not going to go past 15 people, I mean, pulling your shirt up over your nose and your mouth is just as good Um, um, if you're going to do it for the 15 seconds. One thing that um, I think that um, seems like a reasonable, not maybe not now, but one of the things that um, I thought was very reasonable um, for restaurants to do is to do like we talked about before and have good air circulation mm-hmm. um, indoors or even better, just have seating outdoors. Um, so, you know, before, like it doesn't make any sense now because it's so cold, but um, um, in during the summertime and, and, and during the wintertime, that was actually a, a recommended policy is that the restaurants, uh, you know, you should have your activities outdoors or, or sorry, um, not your activity, your, your seating sure. um, outdoors. And that without masks drastically reduces the transmission as well um, because you have air circulation, right? I right. mean, you, like you, you, you think about it, um, it makes sense. Well, it actually happens. Um, you know, that's how the BSL three works. It circulates air through a HEPA filter. Mm. And so, um, it is going in one direction and it's going up. And so that's a little different than outside and it's a little chaotic, but, um, you're a lot safer outdoors. And so if I was going to, uh, give recommendations to restaurants, it would be have the weight staff wear it. Um, 
um, you know, uh, upon entry, I, you know, I guess depending on how busy it is, you don't necessarily, cause you're about to take it off anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the customer doesn't necessarily have to, but I would recommend that the, um, the, um, that, you know, they have it outdoors as much as possible or have a really good air circulation, um, in, in the building. Um, that vents to the outside. I'm not saying right. internal air circulation. So it has to have incoming air, and that air needs to be vented to the outside, basically. Yeah. So that's what I would. That's what I would say. So, um, man, I agree with all that. In fact, I, here's what I really love. And when I say agree with it, I mean it. I think it's logical. Um, yeah. The the thing I love about it is I love to eat outside anyway. So for me, that was a big win. Is like other places having to put in outside dining or or motivated to for these reasons. I'm like, yeah, man, you've just opened yeah. up my whole you know, repertoire here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I went, I went to a few, I mean, I went to, we like it. So I, I, I work on OU's campus and there's a, a, a burger restaurant and we, um, we'd all, um, all, we'd all the time go to this burger restaurant and, um, and they had outdoor seating. And so during the pandemic, uh, my wife and I went a few times, yeah. um, and sat outdoors. And I think, you know, I think outdoors is, is the safest you can be at a restaurant. Yeah. So let me ask you that. I mean, what have you done differently in your personal life? Um, like in other words, are you, have you been afraid to go to restaurants or anything like that? I mean, even if you can't do outside dining, has it stopped you or slowed you down in, in any way? Um, yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I try to keep it down. Um, you know, at the beginning when there wasn't a lot of people wearing masks, I was fortunate enough to have access to N95s and I was working at a BSL three. So I shaved my beard. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a beard now, but, um, and so when there wasn't universal, I felt fine, comfortable going to those restaurants because I had an N95 respirator on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would not have done that if I didn't, if I just had a surgical mask, but now, um, um, at least in, kind of the metro area, um, masks are, you know, we'll say 95% of the people are wearing masks indoors. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I feel safe to, to go into those restaurants when people around me are wearing the masks and I'm also wearing those masks now. So, you know, I can probably back off on that, but yeah, I mean, I, I, at, at the beginning, um, you know, it was, uh, it was a big unknown. Like, uh, you know, the, the, the mortality rate and all the stuff, like no one had really good numbers. And so, um, I was kind of erring on the side of, it could be more dangerous than we think it is. Um, mm. I guess. So. Yeah. So is there a, uh, and we're going to shift gears a little bit. Um, is there a, a, a mortality rate line in your own mind where you would just start living life like you did in 2018? Um, <laughs> well, it, I mean, I guess, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the stratification of the mortality rate is kind of what, um, I would consider not necessarily the raw mortality rate, yeah. you, you know what I mean? And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know a specific number, man. <laughs> well, mean, sure. Right, right, right. If it's, less than, if it's less than a, I don't know. If it's less than uh, maybe a half a percent, I think that it's probably okay um, in a particular age group. And this this virus is is um, really low in in children for some reason, and um, and really kind of upper into around age fifty fifty five, um, um, it starts going up drastically. But um, you know, when I'm seeing mortality rates of two percent or higher, um, you know, I start getting a little nervous. If that's a you know, if that's a hundred thousand people, that's 2000 people that would right. die. 
Right. Um, and so, um, um, it, like, I kind of think of it in that terms, like it's not just the percent, but it's how transmissible is it or how many people are going to be exposed to it. Mm. You, you see what I'm saying? So sure, if, yeah. it, if it's 10%, that seems like, oh, yeah, it's a 1 in 10 uh, or 5% or whatever, I'll roll a 20-sided dice and, and roll, a, roll a 1. And, uh, um, you know, that, that, that should never happen. But then if that is expanded to a million people, um, that's when, you know, that's when it becomes like, you know, really kind of unacceptable or, or makes me nervous. Right. Right. And that, and that makes sense. I mean, if you're, uh, if the transmission rate is really low, but the mortality rate is really high, then, you know, it kind of offsets to whatever degree. That's Ebola, actually. I mean, right. Ebola is really terrible um, about being um, uh, uh, transmitted um, because, you know, uh, people who are symptomatic actually are, are transmitting. There's not a lot of asymptomatic people. So, you know, they can usually shut down Ebola pretty good, um, but it has a super high mortality rate. And so, you know, this, you know, in some ways, this virus is a little more scary than Ebola. Um and that's because of the, you know, the transmission and the, the course of the infection and stuff like that um, allows it to be transmitted to much more people. Yeah. So. Well, and, and you're, you can have it for a couple of weeks. Well, I, from what I understand, you can have yeah. it for a week or two without knowing you have it and then become symptomatic. Yeah. And yes, you can. Yeah. So, so here's one I want to ask about, cause a lot of people ask or, or have <laughs> their own opinions on this, but like, yeah. um, my wife works in an industry where they get documents um, sent to them from all over the world um, overnight. So it's a regular occurrence where they have contracts and agreements overnighted to them. And uh, they've gone through a regimen. You know, they've got some sort of spray or whatever they use. Maybe it's just straight up Lysol. But the point is, is from your perspective, how long... And how like how long does this virus generally last on on we'll say hard surfaces, but also I recognize too a hard surface could also be porous and that probably comes into play. Um, but how long does this last? Is there a legitimate fear for people getting documents overnighted? Um, yeah, I think that uh, at first they were recommending that you know oh it's on there for two days you need to quarantine your mail, but then they you know they backed off a lot on that and actually. It makes a lot of sense um, biologically that a virus, so a virus like this has an envelope and uh, and the, um, it's just a structure that contains lipids. And um, this this envelope uh, kind of makes viruses like sensitive to drying out, and so they have to remain kind of um, in this in this droplet form to be really effective at being um, transmitted. And so you know, I would say that you know. Um, well, the virus, the virus would survive if you could put enough of it on there. You would have uh, it would be infectious enough. But I think that I think that the male, you know, doesn't get exposed as much, so it doesn't suck up as much virus. So I think um, you know, overnight mail is fine, and that's consistent with what the you know what the CDC is recommending as well. So I mean, it, it's just complicated. So if you put more virus on there you're going to have um, 90% of it dies or 99% of it dies. Well, that 1% is enough to, or, uh, to infect you, right? Um, but if you don't put enough virus on there, 99%, there's not enough to infect you. You see what I'm saying? I think that's, what, that's why the surfaces are, while the virus can survive on surfaces for days, 
um, it's only if you like load it up with a ton of virus and normally you're not in that kind of situation. You see what I'm saying? Sure. All right. So another thing that, um, I've heard from people, uh, and I've said myself, um, is kids can't spread it <laughs> because, yep. you know, that has that low effect and, and not just kids, but I think it's connected to the whole, um, asymptomatic thing. So what are your, what's your take on that? Yeah, so um, I think it's kind of safe to say that, you know, it's a bit transmission in different age groups is a bit of kind of an unknown quantity um, still. But I I would say that it's tending towards that um, children can spread it just as much, um, you know, spread the virus just as much as an adult would. Um, they, you know, there was a German study where they, uh, they measured viral shedding in children and, um, it was higher than adults actually. But, um, and I think some of the epidemiological studies that have come out since then, um, suggest that children, um, spread it just as good as adults. And so like, I don't, how do you reconcile that with them not even having symptoms? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really complicated biology question and I'm pretty sure we don't have the answer but I would speculate that it's because, um, um, let's see, um, when you get infected with a virus and you start feeling sick, that is um, basically plan B of your immune system. Mm-hmm. So uh, your immune system has kind of two plans, uh, you know, plan A and plan B. And if you're asymptomatic, that means plan A is working. Um, it doesn't mean that the virus is not, you're not infected and that you're not making it, and you're not shitting it. It's just that. Um, plan A is working. And that plan A does not make you feel sick at all. It doesn't have the right kind of um, factors and everything that make you feel ill. Um, And then um, if that fails or that lasts too long, um, and when I say last too long, like five days, seven days, um, then plan B kicks in. Um, And actually your immune system is kind of working on plan B. Uh, It takes a while to get plan B up and running. And so, um, when you start feeling sick, that's plan B coming in. And so, um, I think in children for, I don't know why, um, I, I can't, I think there are uh, people trying to answer this question right now. Um, but in children, they do shed the virus. I think they transmit it as efficiently as adults, but they don't get sick. And that's probably because plan A is working. That's my guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so herd immunity, this is one thing that people have talked a lot about is that, um, you know, trying to, and, and, and again, it's always a balancing act, but, um, does the vaccine that has been, you know, there's three, I guess, that have been developed that I've, I'm aware of, um, do they affect aid, uh, have zero effect? Do they have anything to do with herd immunity? Do they help it hurt it? Anything like that? Yeah. I mean, they're going, they're definitely going to help herd immunity. Um, so, um, the two vaccines that have the most data are the um, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which was the first to be approved, and then the Moderna vaccine, which was the second one. And those got approved a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I have the most data on. And those um, are um, more or less 95% effective um, at, um, at uh, giving you protective immunity is what we call it. Mm-hmm. And so um, if they... If that generates protective immunity in 95% of the fee- people, it's going to, uh, you know, uh, basically prevent those people who've gotten the vaccine um, from getting the virus. And it, it actually ends up being around seven to 14 days after the first dose. You still get, you still have to get the second dose to give you kind of the long-term boost. But mm-hmm. the, um, 
um, around seven to 14 days after you get the vaccine, um, you're considered uh, protective or you, you're considered to have protective immunity. Okay. Um, and so that's that's basically going, those people that have gotten vaccinated around 17 to 14 days after the first shot are going to be considered immune. And those are going to be the people that um, um, are going to be a part of the herd immunity. Um, you know, the herd immunity on this virus is I've seen estimates that say it has to be anywhere between uh, 70 to 50 percent of the population needs to be um, immunized or have protective immunity. Um, in order for it to kind of go the, uh, uh, to halt uh, transmission, mm-hmm. um, which is what they want. And so, you know, it's it's definitely going to um, help the herd immunity um, by having these. Yeah, gotcha. So, yeah, and and <laughs> my question as a, as a process that, you know, the vaccine is going to obviously increase the percentage of immunity. I guess my bigger thought was it didn't, that it wouldn't harm it, that it wasn't some sort of uh, prophylactic that kept it from, uh, grow, you know, helping others as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. You're right. Okay. Gotcha. Um, uh-huh. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that the, uh, um, you know, one of the thing, one of the things people ask me a lot about the vaccine and what actually the FDA asked Moderna and Pfizer and everyone wants to know the answer to this is how long does the protective immunity lasts. It's like, hey, great, you have protective immunity after you get the second dose for a few months, which is really how long they they tested them um, for. Yeah. And so kind of the short answer is nobody has a clue. Um, right. Because, because they only started giving the vaccines like, uh, well, um, in March, right? That was the phase two. That's where they started the phase two. So they haven't gone um, that far. Um, but um, I think that um, given that the, the immunology data that they did publish, which wasn't a lot, um, and so I'm kind of inferring off of incomplete data, mm-hmm. so for whatever that's worth, um, uh, my guess is that it would be um, at least a year-long immunity because the the antibody titers are so high um, in um, people with the vaccine. It, it actually... Um, and I'm not the only one that thinks this, but they, uh, it, it, this is unlike any other vaccine um, in that it is more protective than the natural infection. Most of the time, it's the exact opposite. Uh, mo- most of the time, the natural infection is a lot more protective than the actual virus. Gotcha. Um, but there's a little bit of data that says that um, you know the vaccine is actually better than than getting the natural infection in terms of protective immunity. Wow. So does that then? Uh potentially infer or, um, you know, provide for the possibility that it is a one and done vaccination or is it going to be more like an annual flu shot in your mind? I mean, I think that, uh, given the, um, uncertainty, they will probably, um, recommend that be, uh, an annual thing. Um, it's a little, it's a little bit of a weird thing here because they don't have enough vaccines to vaccinate earth. Um, and so do you um, give the vaccine to people um, when there's no transmission around where other people could use those same doses? And so it's an interesting question, and I don't really know how this is going to um, end up. Um, but if we, apart from that, if we had a sufficient vaccines and they were, um, uh, and you could give them to everyone, I would say that it, they would um, probably recommend that it, it mm. would be an annual vaccine. At least you would get the booster shot. Um, but 
I mean, I, I kind of think that that is a bit unnecessary. Um, um, if, it, if, it, if, the, if you still have uh, um, neutralizing antibodies a year out after infection, you're probably still going to have them at least five years. So it might be like a, maybe, they, maybe it's a five-year. You go and get a booster shot every five years. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of unknowns. We might, <laughs> right. uh, hopefully, we eradicate it. Uh, um, we may eradicate this virus, um, in humans at least, and it'll just what it does is it'll jump back into animals. So when it's like, oh, humans aren't good anymore, they'll jump back into animals and it'll start mutating again, and then it will um, mutate so that it dodges the SARS-CoV-2 immunity that you have, um, and then um, or it'll just die out. Um, that's a possibility as well, too. Hmm. So the uh, process of thought I have is if you if you look at it based on the most vulnerable, to me, if you you know highly recommended the immunization of everyone over the age of 55, for example. Um, yeah. At that point in my mind, it's, it's probably on par with the, uh, the flu in terms of the numbers. Um, yeah. Because, you know, the, again, they're the most vulnerable. And so their hospital rates, their, you know, um, mortality rates are the ones that are going to make all the difference on the numbers, but. Correct. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't know. It'll be yeah, interesting think- to see for sure. And, you know, we'll kind of transition into the politicizing of all this because I think that the uh, I have this thought. I wonder if this broke out in 2016 or 2017, if it would have been politicized at all. But simply, you know, leading yeah. up to a an election year um, or or really taking foothold in the election year, you think, well, I mean, how much of it was to affect that and. How much is just the difference between, you know, political factions and the way they think, you know, as, as we've talked before, I'm, I'm a libertarian. My, my position is basically just shy of anarchist, I suppose, like no law. Oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah I got you. And yeah. so, you know, you look at that kind of thing and, uh, and so for me personally, any kind of mandate and I'm just like, yeah, you know, I want to say, make me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, know? right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't tell me what to do. Yeah, I totally got it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but I think, you know, that's that's one of the things that I've seen here is, you know, we you know, how well the the big issue is if you look at so many other countries and how they dealt with things like the lockdowns and um, you know, trying to to stifle this virus and we look at the United States, um, we had such inconsistency and and I would argue the reason we have inconsistency is because we have 50 states as opposed to one nation. We do have that one nation, but we don't have the kind of jurisdiction that people think we do. And, you know, it's like the president can't just make an order and everyone follow it. He can do that, but there's a lot of levels to that. And whether everybody follows it or not, you don't have enough law enforcement to make sure that actually happens. You're 100% right. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it really is um, uh, uh, persuading public opinion. That's more powerful really, I think than. Um, having specific policies. Yeah. And I think uh, the problem is when you look at the the states that have locked down, you know, the guys like me, uh, you know, that's just going to amp them up. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, right or wrong, because what they're going to say is, all right, then you need to provide data. Because what they're doing is they're trying to 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 slow this roll. Here's my, here's my best assessment of what the politicians that have locked down are doing. Now, when I say my best, I mean like this is the most optimistic you'll ever hear me talk about them. And that is they were doing what they thought was best to slow the spread of this virus. Now, uh-huh. once science 
and when I say science, once to me, their their guiding light, which was the Center for Disease Control and the World Health Organization, um, yeah. among others. But but those were the ones they always talked about when they started saying lockdowns are bad. <laughs> and they said, well, yeah. I don't know if I want to keep listening to the science because the lockdowns have been really good for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think the thing was is like um, nobody had a clue, so no one had data, um, and the only data the data they had was very outdated. Um, they knew that lockdowns were a way um, were an effective way at reducing transmission of this type of virus, and um, but you know, since then, you know, they they have start, when they started uh, recommending wearing masks that basically replaced the lockdowns and so i i don't think that you know it, i think what the reason why they were doing that is because they were trying their best and they had no data to work with mm-hmm. um, this is partly because you know they an infectious disease ex- experts are are weren't really funded so there wasn't a lot of research that went into this so no one no one knew basically how to handle the um to reduce this and the only way they knew was um was to do this and then you know they were like well um it's not effective and you're like well um yeah it is effective but you're not wording it right i mean it mm. um it could be replaced by wearing masks and social distancing um and so um 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 it's Look! Look! A lockdown is 100% effective. That, that it's like they have they had a, a a study that was out of some oh, some place some place in Asia. I don't remember what it was. Um, where they um gave the results of a lockdown of an entire city. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was extremely effective. But that comes at a cost, man. Like right. people, it's, it's it's not it's not in a vacuum, right? Right. Well, and that's so, the thing. This is yeah. this would be my argument that no place in the United States really locked down. Yeah. The thing is, if you look at uh, Wuhan, right? So Wuhan, they they welded people into their homes like, yeah, it was it was totalitarian dictatorship. You're locked down. And will that be effective? I mean, the logic there is clearly those who have it, who can't get medical attention and who are going to die will die. And well, the virus will die with them. Those who who don't have it won't get it because for two weeks we're just done. We're not doing anything. So yeah, Yeah. of course that works. The problem is we do just enough. The the old adage, I know just enough to be dangerous. Well, that is our American politicians. They know just enough to be dangerous. We're going to lock down the country. Well, we can't lock everything down. So we'll go ahead and do this. But, but transmissions, transmission, no matter how you slice it, if I have one guy who's got it and I let him have a free pass to go talk to 50 people, they're going to get it. And, right. And, yeah. and at that point, you might as well have done nothing. And I think this would be my fundamental argument is kind of what you said. And 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 here's my argument. This argument is for today. It is not for a year ago. Yeah. And, OK. Fair. And, yeah. And, and that is no lockdowns. And, and even from the mask standpoint, because we have um, we do not have a mask mandate in the state of Oklahoma. Yet, in general, we see 90 to 95 percent people wearing the mask. And so. To me, if you're going to say, look, here, here we're going to present the facts. If you're not wearing a mask, you're infecting other people if you have it. So if yeah. you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you don't have it, you know, there you go, and, which nobody yeah. knows beyond oh. a shadow of a doubt. Um, right. But the whole point is, is that if we had that in place and we encouraged, if I'm a, if I'm the governor of Oklahoma and, I, and I'm really on board with this idea, I'm going to encourage every private business to 
require masks. We're not going to make it a law, but we're going to ask you to. And just like you have signs that say, you know, no concealed carry um, uh-huh. going into certain stores, you know, some yeah. people will, will follow that rule. Some people won't. Well, when you're talking about concealed carry on weaponry, it's concealed. <laughs> so right, you don't yeah. know who follows that rule. Know, right? yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but, but when you're talking about masks, you absolutely know. And if you're a business and you want to stay hard and true to it, it's a simple, you can't do it because what you, what happens with the firearms is you basically um, get asked to leave. And if you don't, then you're charged with trespassing. The same exact yeah. thing would happen with the masks. If you don't right. wear a mask, then you're going to get charged with trespassing. And yep. it's simple as that. Well, yeah. to me, that kind of policy is not totalitarian. It's not, yeah. it's not really restrictive. It's encouraging a certain behavior using our free market system, using our free society to, to, to do something that we feel is effective. And, and Mm -hmm. here's the thing we have seen in general, the states that have quote unquote locked down and the states that haven't really haven't had a big correlation in terms of infection um, rates. I mean, it's like they're still spike when other states spike and, um, I, you know, I think as you and I talked before, the scientific method generally is if I'm going to make a hypothesis, then I'm going to take this situation. I'm going to change one variable and record the results. Then I'm going to change another variable. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not what we get to do in this, this world that we're in now, this Petri dish of, of the United States. And, right. and so I think, you know, this has been the problem and it has been politicized to, you know, further divide a country that was already divided. I mean, come on, let's be real. The factions yeah. were already hardlined, and now the argument becomes uh, freedom versus restriction. And you know, I mm-hmm. it's I don't know. It's weird. It's a tough place to be. But um, I don't know. You want to comment on any of that? <laughs> well, no. I mean, uh, like you're definitely right. I mean, the the lockdowns are uh, definitely more of a severe thing that come at a cost. Um, and I think, you know, the real good balance is it, it, it ended up being the mass thing. And that, that was what I thought was unfortunately politicized. Like, you know, I can consider the lockdowns and yeah, you're going to do that and that's fine. Um, but the, uh, but politicizing the mass thing was, um, terrible, like, because it was such a simple and effective, uh, thing. And then it became a political statement and it's like, come on, man. I mean, <laughs> we're mm-hmm. trying to save lives here. <laughs> Why, why do we have to make it political? Yeah. And so, um, you know, that was one of the things that frustrated me, but yeah, you're, you're a hundred percent right that, you know, uh, there are, um, you know, restrictions that are not necessary now and things need to be considered, uh, not in a vacuum, um, like even education and stuff. So it's, you, the other thing I think is like what you were, you were referring to maybe transmission and stuff in the Petri dish. Yeah. It's a bit chaotic. I mean, um, epidemiologists spend their whole, whole, um, you know, time trying to figure out what control groups um, they can use to compare to see, okay, um, did this, you know, this place didn't wear a mask, this place wore a mask. Well, is this rural or is this urban Mm. or is this, and so that has a lot to do with it as well. And so it's really complicated. I can't even pretend to know um, what I'm talking about in terms of, you know, uh, it, you know, things that work um, or the minutia of the detail. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, there, there was a paper that came out that had really controlled uh, um, um, kind of populations with and without masks. 
um, that was kind of the nail in the coffin in terms of raw data that said that they were effective at reducing the transmission. Uh, but until then, everyone was like grasping at straws. And so, like, yeah, it 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 irks me that um, that it it became a political um, when people were dying, and um, you know. Uh, it definitely did not help that, you know, uh, maybe experts come from a position that I know more than you do. Um, you, I can't trust you to, you know, look out for yourself. So I'm going to tell you what to do mm. instead of, Hey, here's the data or God forbid, I don't know what the data is, but my recommendation would be to do this. And I think if you're approaching it, um, um, from that kind of standpoint, then, um, then you're going to, you know, convince more people. Like you said, man, um, uh, changing people's mind is probably more powerful than, you know, having a law. Yeah. You know, uh, another thing I would say is sometimes while the laws can't be enforced, they definitely signal that it's a serious thing. Right. And yeah, so, sure. so, so, you know, the, the, uh, a mask mandate is maybe more symbolic than anything. Do you mm. see what I'm saying? Like, I do, the, sure. You can't enforce it, but you're saying, look, this is serious. We're, we're saying that this is the answer or the rest of the country is having that. Then, you know, I think it just kind of escalates the seriousness of or how confident are you? Um, well, we're so confident that, you know, we made a law. Yeah. And so, so but, you know, I definitely it's well taken that um, convincing people with logic and data is far better than um, <laughs> than saying, this is what you should do. Trust me. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. Well, and, and the fundamental issue is, um, you know, I, I can't remember the last time uh, I ever heard a politician or a mainstream media personality say, oh, gosh, guys, sorry, we were wrong. Yeah. No, <laughs> They've never owned being wrong, even when it's something that they weren't wrong about. They just reported something that was turned out, you know, turned out to be wrong. They don't they don't say, oops, we made a mistake because we interviewed somebody who just didn't know, you know, like especially when we're talking about this pandemic. And and so yeah. what happens is when you ignore the wrong. Right. You ignore the fact that we we're wrong because this is really what happened to me. I'll tell you this story, because um, when I would say back in uh, probably March, early March, uh, when everything started happening, I, I had plans to be of all places in Corona, California. And <laughs> yeah. um, I uh, I had to cancel those plans really last minute, like the week of uh, in because I was going to be driving it and I didn't want to be in Arizona and find out that California had shut down. And so yeah. um, I rolled the dice and was was pleasantly surprised, so to speak, because uh, yeah. a couple of days <laughs> later they locked down. But here's the thing. So. I was, I didn't care that they said don't wear masks because in my brain, a mask's not going to hurt me. And I had N95 masks in my garage for painting. <laughs> so, so I'm like, uh, I'm wearing a mask. I don't care where yeah. I go. Right. And so I was one yeah. of the few guys wearing a mask at the time. And, uh, and that was my, my role. Well, then, as we, we've already discussed, you know, um, the uh, task force or I don't know who said it, but somebody said, you know, I, I know for sure Fauci did at one point. Masks are crazy. You don't need to wear masks, blah, blah, blah. And and so when that happened, which we know now the story, you know, as we talked about already is they were just trying to keep a run on masks from happening. But yeah. um, but in that 
what happened to me next was I, I'm I'm finding myself here not wearing the mask again because I'm like, hey, okay, they said I don't have to wear a mask, doesn't do anything anyway. Um, and so I'm walking through Target with my wife and I'm seeing all these people with masks and I'm just getting more and more enraged internally. And, yeah. and I'm thinking, why am I upset? And I, I do a lot of self-evaluation, self-seeking, <laughs> you know, trying to figure yeah. out what's wrong yeah. with my brain. And so sure. um, I realized the problem was was authenticity. Yeah. Because I'm sitting here going, look, I I mean, I just want to be real. And, and I am being asked, not, not just asked, I am being almost shunned for not participating in what I perceived as a complete and total charade. Yeah, and, and I'm uh-huh. like, why is this? No, I'm not going to do this. Like, this is dr- is making me angry. Well, then as time goes on, you know, more information comes out about the masks, and now the problem is, and and, and I'm basically laying out why I think it became politicized is yeah is because um, when when it came out after that that they lied, whoever you know, in general, they just didn't want a run on masks. Dude, say that. Oh my gosh, say that. Yeah, the the yeah. American population will there be some people who try to to take advantage yes if you're a if you're a, a company who's selling masks and you find somebody ordering 400,000 masks or some huge number even let's say 400 masks to go you can obviously tell they're going to be selling them on eBay at an incredible rate then don't sell it to them i mean you can put some some limits you know limit one per customer or whatever well you do that yeah. And and that's the thing. Like there was a lot of things they could have done. Well, now what have they done that the media and the government have completely just rattled my ability to trust them? Because now I yep. know this. I know that they if they think it's in my best interest, they will absolutely lie to me. And yep. and even if they don't think it's in my best interest, more to the point, if they think it's in their best interest, they're going to lie to me. So now I can't. I can't really trust anything they say. And, you know, as you and I have talked before, uh, you know, off the podcast is like, how, how do you come back from that? Not just in this particular context, but on, in any capacity. Yeah. I mean, I think the way that you come back from being untruthful is just to uh, be upfront and say you were wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't listen to everything um, that, you know, CDC or Fauci or the NIH would, you know, was saying at the time. Um, I was actually busy in the level three, um, but, uh, um, but the, uh, uh, I don't, so, so I don't know specifically on, you know, what the, if they did apologize or not. Um, but I think the way to do that is to be like, look guys, you know, you know, we won't do it again. Uh, we really, we were wrong to say that, uh, about masks or there was like, you know, there was, there was maybe a scientist over here that was saying it and a scientist over there was saying it. And I think really the strongest thing is to say, look, I don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what I think. Um, it, it could be not that I know, and this is what you're going to do. Um, and I think it's always a mistake to to come at somebody like that is to say that you know um, it's so it's so authentic and it convinces a lot more people when you say I don't know and you say I'm wrong mm-hmm. uh, and like really as scientists um, we are kind of conditioned to come from this mindset um, of I don't know I don't know everything and I'm often wrong and like it, it, it's like our mantra. And so, but, you know, 
if you're on TV, that it's like the like you definitely like those are the first rules that you should not do, right? Or <laughs> maybe not necessarily on TV, um, because I know that there are some you know there's some good journalists out there that will you know try to be as authentic as possible. But the but uh, um, if you're an expert on a panel, you know coming out and saying that you know for certain um, is is just wrong, and you shouldn't you shouldn't you shouldn't be like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how you get around that, because if you if you're if you're an expert on TV and you say you literally don't know, no one will ever. They were like, oh, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. You're like, but nobody knows. Right. And so, um, you know, I think that they're they're uh, 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 maybe they just assume that um, if an expert says that he doesn't know or that he's sorry, it's basically um well, he's not credible anymore. Well, but, and there's yeah. other ways to address that, though. I don't know is an acceptable answer with the qualifier. If I'm an expert in in audio, uh, which some people have called me, and I don't hardly ever claim that unless I'm talking to somebody who knows nothing. <laughs> but, you know, because it is a perspective, right? I mean, yeah. it, by a lot of accounts, I'm going to be an expert in, um, you know, virus stuff because you and I have had a time and you've educated me and more than the average person say. But, uh-huh. yeah. but the whole thing is like, the first thing I'm going to say is this, with the data that I have, here's the conclusion I've come to. And I could be wrong because science changes every day, but this is what I think it's my best guess, which is what anything is, right? It's our best guess based on the data we currently have. Yeah. So I'm a real big fan of Bayesian reasoning. Have you heard of that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's basically um, what you do is like when you don't know anything about it, you take a guess, but your confidence isn't that high in that guess. Mm-hmm. And then when data comes in, you slightly modify that guess and increase your confidence. Right. Yeah. And so it's just a system of basically um, modifying your original hypothesis or, or setting it up or um, um, quantifying um, basically how confident you are in certain data. And so but the really the kind of practical aspect of that is, is like you should be changing your mind with incoming data. Mm-hmm. And like that, that just it's one it's a thing that is not a maybe well accepted thing. Like mm-hmm. people, if you tell them that it's not intuitive and people often think that you need to stick to one position, and not ever change. Yeah. And so, um, but that's not how that's not how this works. That's not how any of the you know, um, the the best scientists I know say to abandon your pet hypothesis every day, right? And right. so, um, and and it's really the truth. You need you need to not um, stick with things with such a, you know vehemence, and that you are completely right. Um, you need to be modifying and changing with incoming data. And I think, I think that's actually how most people work, um, except when they just uh, shut that part of them down, right? Mm-hmm. Because maybe they're saying, oh, well, there's no way I can be wishy-washy. I've got to be black and white. I am 100% confident or 100% confident that way. Um, I just think that that doesn't work. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. Um, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, I, I appreciate you calling back and letting us uh, have another conversation with you. This one we did get recorded and will go live. I'm so excited to say that. Um, Perfect. But, uh, man, it, it's a pleasure. And, and honestly, um, thank you for uh, legitimizing my channel a little bit with your time. <laughs> no problem, man. <laughs> hey, and I want to thank all of you listeners out there for joining us. I know there's some great information. Doc Curtis, uh, I'm happy to be able to call him my friend as of today for sure. And uh, yeah, so if you uh, found this useful, please share it with others. Uh, and let's uh, 
I don't know. Let's just remember we're all in this together. Hey, I love you guys. God bless you. And we'll see you next time.